All right, Lawyer Talk, here again with our video interview series. Uh, those who follow this, and I know there's hundreds and hundreds of thousands of folks who do, but uh, those who follow it know we've been interviewing all sorts of folks. I, I, I'm an attorney, I do criminal defense work, Steve Palmer here. Uh, and most of the time though, I try to avoid criminal defense topics. I can't help it sometimes. Uh, today we are taking on perhaps one of the most controversial criminal defense topics, and we're gonna get to it, uh, but first, I'd like to introduce uh, Dr. Chris Pulaski. Chris, good to see good you. To see. Uh, your resume is sort of fascinating to me. Uh, grew up in Michigan, mm -hmm. uh, Albion College, yep. athlete, yep. Uh, medical school at Northwestern, mm -hmm. top grades, I assume. Yeah. You can say it. Yeah. All right. <laughs> uh, and then MD Anderson. Yeah. Uh, and you got into cancer work. Mm -hmm. And then Elkton. Yes. Now that's sort of ironic. People, they don't know what Elkton yet is, but we're gonna get there. Yeah, that's uh, not a medical school. It's not a medical school. No. Uh, you're an author, you've written, what, two books now? Two books. Uh, so uh, let's, let's sort of drop the, the mic here and get to what we're getting at. Uh, give us, uh, why'd you write a book? Um, I actually came from journaling. You know, I, I'll get to it, but uh, during my uh, therapy, they asked me to, uh, to to journal to get my thoughts. And as I kind of put my life together, um, you know, I shared it with some of my colleagues and they're like, you really should put this to press. Like, I, this is gonna be very helpful for a lot of people uh, to help understand not just what happened to you, but you know, what what's kind of happening in, in their lives, you know, something they can relate to. And, the reason why my life is interesting, you kind of... Yeah, I hinted at it. I dropped the Elkton, and there's probably lots who don't even understand yet what Elkton yeah. is, but let's just, let's just uh, air it out. So, um, I guess we should start at the beginning. Um, when I was very young, we're talking three or four years old, my parents lived in uh, married housing up in college. And, you know, my memory's fuzzy, but I, I, I was sexually abused at a, at a very young age and uh and I, st I still don't know all what happened that's hard to have memories from that age a, a few years later um, my parents are out of college struggling financially uh you know we lived in my grandmother's neighborhood and uh, there was a, a man there that had a pool that a lot of the neighborhood kids he would invite over and um that access came with the price. Um, he, you know, he made me do some, you know, some things that are, it's diff even now after years of therapy, difficult to talk about. Um, that happened a, a, a couple times. And I guess it's difficult to talk about. It was probably difficult to even think about. Yeah. Until you were sort of forced to. Correct. And there was another incident from a female family member even a few years later. So from about the age of three to seven, I had three different adults sexually violate me. And so a lot of my childhood, the elementary school years, I was a, I was just an uncontrollable kid. You know, I was always getting in trouble at school, acting up, uh, talking a lot, just always bouncing everywhere. and. In hindsight, I understand why that is, but in that time, I'm, I'm 
all this time I'm being told I'm like, you're a bad kid, you're uncontrollable, and this and that. You know, you're why and, are you always getting in trouble? And at the same time, you've got this secret, so to speak, whether maybe you didn't even realize it at the time. Exactly. And uh and then something happened around eighth grade. I, I grew like a six or seven inches that that summer and I was just destroying people on the football field because I'm like a foot taller than everyone and um I don't know maybe I felt a little more comfortable and all of that crazy energy that I had was focused into school so from eighth grade on it was sports and school and hard work all the time I mean in my academic career, I got one B, and it was in typing of all classes, which is weird because I've written a few books, and I didn't use the technique that I learned in typing. I hear you, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so that carried out throughout college. Um, you know, I had to be an overachiever, had to be the best I could be, you know, the best in general. Got into medical school, Northwestern, which is a pretty good medical school. And I couldn't stop there. I had to choose a specialty that is the most competitive, you know, among the most competitive. And I chose radiation oncology because I was interested in cancer. And, um, you know, only about 100, 120 out of 35,000 graduating medical students, only 100 go into radiation oncology. And it wasn't just that specialty. I had to go to MD Anderson Cancer Center, which is one of the best yeah, I mean, to those in, who don't know, I mean, that, that's like you, you put MD Anderson on your resume. That's like saying you're the top of the top of the top in that field, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's like I I couldn't stop, you know, that each each achievement and each success makes you want to get more. And uh, I Al just kept almost like addictive behavior. Right. I mean, in, in a lot of ways. Exactly. And. You know, I got to a point where I stayed on faculty at MD Anderson, and then I was recruited to Ohio State, and uh, they gave me a tremendous opportunity. And, you know, I was able to not just be a doctor, but I was uh, director of the residency program. So I was educating and training the next generation of uh, radiation oncologists. And, you know, the the science in the in the in the medicine is what appealed to me a lot. And so I got, I was running my own basic science research lab, you know, getting grants, um, working on the, on the clinical side, building up that program and everything I did just kept getting better. And, and you know, all the time I had just stuff gnawing away at, at the, at the back of my head, uh, back of my mind. And, um, you know, I was drinking more, just, just taking more on. And towards the end of my uh, residency, uh, you know, like a lot of other guys that I know, they would look at porn online. And uh, I came across uh, child pornography, you know, looking on a peer-to-peer -peer system. And... The first thing I, the first thing I saw was, it was a, a man in a dark robe and he had a, was this about a six-year-old girl perform oral sex on him in a bathroom. And that was exactly 
what happened to me around that age with that, that man who had the neighborhood pool in my grandmother's uh, neighborhood when my family lived there. And that just stirred up a lot of memories, you know, um, and it, it just kind of stayed with me. There were long periods of time where, you know, stress would, would subside and I wouldn't go to that. And then um, when I came to Ohio State and had my workload, you know, tripled almost overnight. And I have some insight into how many hours you were working. I mean, it's like you never saw the light of day. No, you were you were gone at, at before light and back after dark, even back after your family had already gone to bed. I mean, it, it, that kind of schedule brutal, really. Yeah, I mean, I would finish up my clinic notes or work on a grant or a, uh, a manuscript I was writing for uh, public publication of an article of work in the lab. Yeah, uh, I would do. I would work on that after they all went to sleep, and um, you know. I would go back. I knew how to find where those files were on these peer-to-peer uh, -peer networks. And after, after a while of not doing that, I did that. And based on the police reports, that, would have, that was in October of 2012. So from that point till the day my house was raided, um, I went on there five different times and they kind of saw that I was active and, and looking uh, at the files on there. Let me sort of stop you there, because by now I think the secret is out what's going on, right? You had an accusation and, in fact, an indictment. You were charged with possession of child pornography for uh, in, in here in our federal court mm -hmm. in Columbus, Ohio, the Southern District, Eastern Division. Um, you, you've already mentioned that your house was raided. Oh, yeah, uh, we had the news vans and there's a helicopter flying around. I mean, it was... That was a tough day, July 24th, 2015, or 2013. Well, let me sort of shift, uh, shift gears a little bit here and talk because I have defended cases, uh, criminal cases my entire career. Uh, in fact, you're, we're about the same age, right? Maybe mm -hmm. just different paths. Uh, I, I started my practice in 1995. I have seen all sorts of criminal cases and uh, most recently, say in the last 10 to 12 years, if not a little bit more, uh, the, the internet child pornography phenomena, if that's the right word for it, I don't know, has sort of taken off in various different ways and for various different reasons. Um, I mean, there was a time that when I represented people, it was the sort of what I call the truck driver scenario, where there's a, there's a person, a, a creepy dude driving around in a truck around the country, collecting uh, or making contact with people who make this stuff in their basement. And they got like eight by 10 glossy homemade magazines. I mean, it wasn't on the internet, in other words. And it was a very rare bird that you would have those things. And, and my, one of the things that I'm going to cover today and, and, and try to convey today is that that is the perception that I think that society still has. And I think the laws that were written were designed to address that scenario mm -hmm. because there really wasn't much of a question of what that dude was what that dude is and the danger that is created there. And from that, uh, we get the internet. And what I mean by from that is that perception sort of leaks over now and mm -hmm. in fact spills over to everybody's perception of why people don't on the internet. And 
you know, to be sure, there are folks who get involved with child pornography for the same reason, just a lot easier as the truck driver. Right. But by and large, and I've defended dozens of these cases, if not more, over the years, uh, and very few are that. Mm-hmm. But the law still addresses these cases as if it were that. Yeah. Yeah. And at my sentencing, the, the, the judge that I had, uh, Judge Graham, Judge Graham, uh, he, he mentioned that. He said the, the majority of the men that, that stand before me with this particular charge would, would never consider laying a sinister hand on a child. Yeah, take that in for a second. So the men, and he, Judge Graham's a very eloquent judge, right? right? Yeah. Yeah, and he sees lots of these. And, and think of that. It's like, uh, would never lay a hand, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, so what he's saying is that people, by and large, most of the people he sees are not what we sort of call in the in the system as contact offenders. Correct. And by contact offenders, we're talking about those who actually go out and touch and molest children. And by the way, I mean, I think we can all agree, or certainly uh, everybody I've ever talked to would agree, that it's horrible, right? Touching kids, molesting kids, abusing kids is uh, awful. Uh, nobody, Nobody's advocating for that in any way, shape, or form, nor condoning it, right? right. I mean, it, that's not what this is. Um, but an offshoot of that is this internet child pornography phenomenon. And I think it's fascinating, uh, one, that you have the, say, intellectual capacity to, to sort of assess it after the fact and, and go through mm-hmm. and figure out why and what and, 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 and even write a book about it. But maybe more fascinating is that you want to talk about it because this is a taboo, right? I mean, this is not something people want to talk about. It is. You know, the, the New York Times just released an article uh, talking about the scope of the problem and, and it came out last week and you know one of the points they make is that people do kind of shy away from it e- even if if discussing it is on an agenda for a meeting a lot of lawmakers and uh, judges they don't it, it is it's a it's a very ugly underbelly and a lot of people just don't want to look at it and they don't want to to go over the nuances. Well, sure, to say, I mean, look, the law right now, and I'll just sort of give the the legal status right now, there's not an easy or any, in fact, distinction between those who engage in exploring and searching for and downloading child pornography on the internet uh, for purposes like you, right, almost therapeutic screwed up therapy for sure. Self, yeah. Self-help type of therapy or, you know, yeah. it's like self-medication for lack of a better way to put it. Well, and that's one of the things. So in time, uh, you know, that, that rambunctious childhood that I had, uh, getting in trouble, never comfortable in my own skin. And then later on the flashbacks and the, and the, those thoughts in the back of my head, it turns out all this time I had post-traumatic stress disorder. Undiagnosed. It was undiagnosed. Yeah. And I went through uh, my childhood and early adult life. They gave, when I was a young adult, they said, well, you probably have attention deficit disorder. Um, so here, take some Ritalin, which amphetamines probably not the best thing to take for someone with post-traumatic stress disorder. Oh, that's ironic, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, generalized anxiety disorder here, take this Effexor. Um, and I think part of that too was I was both afraid to kind of talk about the abuse that happened, but also I, I, I wasn't 
convinced in my head that that's what I knew something weird happened. And what happened when I first saw child pornography, it, it, it just triggered a, almost like a, it's so overwhelming. You just shut down. You become like a, you go into a hypovigilant state and wanting to go back is it's, it's a, it's a symptom of post-traumatic stress disorder called repetition compulsion. And the, the best example of that is a lot of the soldiers that come back from Iraq or Afghanistan and they're playing like badge of honor and, you know, or medal of honor, the, the online yeah, where you're yeah, like in combat. It. Yeah. They're reliving it. They're, you know, they're, they're, they're back from their service, but they're still kind of stuck in the, in that combat, you know, want to be in that uh, scenario, even though it's simulated. So that's repetition compulsion. And it, the person who has that, uh, they revisit the traumatic event or seek out triggers that kind of bring about the emotions that were happening. And it, it induces like a dissociation. And, and I'm not a psychologist, but I can right. already see where this is going, right? So yeah. you're doing that, which is really uh, more of a punctuation of all the stuff that caused it in the first place, as opposed to actually finding some pathway to process it and deal with it in a, in a healthier way, right? Yeah, because I mean, when I would do this, more memories would, like I would remember more details. And there was a part of that too. I'm like, I, I want to know everything that happened. And really at this point, I, I don't really want to know anymore what happened to me. I'm fine. I, I can accept that it happened. Um, I know how it's impacted my life. You know, I, I got all the answers, you know, so I've been trying to move on. And you mentioned Elkton. Yeah. So, so that was my next stop. It was prison. Prison. Elkton yeah. is prison. Before we get there, though, hold, let me hold off. Yeah. Because what is a great segue back to what I was getting at, which is the law doesn't, there's, there's nothing written in the law. There is no affirmative distinction in the law. And really, there is no uh, requirement in the law that it, it treats somebody who is engaged in this behavior for therapeutic reasons or for reasons, let's just say, that aren't sexually uh, arousal reasons, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, which is not what this was for you. And by and large, I, I know lots of cases where it's similar like, yeah. to yours. And the other kind, which is the old truck driver case where, where there's the creepers out there that nobody would say are safe to be around your kids, right? So th the law doesn't delineate that. And the problem that causes in cases like yours, in cases that I defend all the time, is that you end up with these catastrophic results for people that when you unravel the ball of twine, so to speak, mm -hmm. it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't, it doesn't all fit together, which is, I think, where you were going with your Elkton story, right? right. Yeah. So um, at Elkton, about 60% of the prison population had my charge, non-production, non-contact child pornography offenses. Which 60%. Let me cut you off. 60%. How many were there, you think, total? Uh, in my unit anywhere between 120 150 and there were four units so for that and that was so say uh, seven six seven hundred people right is that, yeah is that right yeah that's, that's close 600 people yeah and my first book was actually published while i was there and it it, it circulated and a lot of people read it and i, I what that did was kind of lower the guard a little bit they were like oh well, this guy just put his life story to print 
let me talk to him. So I got to hear a lot of guys' life stories. That's, I, like, that's, that's sort of fascinating, right? Yeah. Uh, the, my last, it's like being a lawyer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the last few months there, you know, a guy would show up at my cube and be like, hey, uh, you wrote that book? And I'm like, I already know what's coming. He's going to want to, we're going to walk around the track and I'm going to hear his life story. And what I heard over and over again was the, the trauma that's, that was in their lives. It, it was like, it was, it was universal. And we're talking about the, the, I guess the prototype for, we're talking about the case where you've got folks who were just looking and downloading, mm-hmm. um, not the truck driver case. And, and, and by and large, not necessarily a huge amount. Sometimes there are huge amounts, but sometimes not so large. And I'll, I'll get to the legal stuff yeah. uh, in a bit. But they're talking about your model, right? Basically, you're, people like you that are making up about 60% of the population. Yeah. And, and Elton was unique in that regard. In most prison settings, uh, just sex offenders in general are anywhere from 5 to 15%. And they have a very rough time. <laughs> yes, they do. Well, here's what we're going to do. Um, we got a lot of ground to cover and we're going to cover it, but uh, let's take a break. We'll come back. We're going to hit your books. I want to talk a lot more about Elkton and I really want to delve into uh, maybe my side of this a little bit more about the experience in the courtroom and the experience with judges, the experience in, in dealing with it legally uh, and, and, and why things maybe uh, are ripe for a change. So uh, stay tuned and stand by. We'll be back after this break. Back from the break, Steve Palmer here with Lawyer Talk uh, interview series here with Dr. Chris Pulaski. Uh, and we're going to get back to it. We were talking a little bit about uh, your experience at Elkton, uh, how you essentially sort of became a, what I'm guessing is maybe a jailhouse therapist, for lack of a better word, after you wrote your book. Mm-hmm. People shared their stories with you. And I want to hear a lot more about that. But before that, maybe I'll get a little selfish. We'll talk about um, the call I got from you, right? I mean, I, mm-hmm. cause let's just let the cat out of the bag. I represented you, or at least I was one of the people on the defense team. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that, that became a topic of your book. Uh, and maybe what we can do is share some of the things you learned about the system, the legal, uh, ramifications of where you get charged, where you don't get charged with these types of offenses mm-hmm. and, uh, maybe some of the sentencing issues that, that came up. But, you know, I, I still remember to this day uh, when you called, uh, and I, I, I know I've done this long enough to know that tone in somebody's voice, like this is this is a catastrophic mm-hmm. uh, situation. You know, this is like the world has fallen out from under your feet, and and things are crumbling. And I and I know how I, I've been around it enough to know where you were, and, and it it, was, it had to have been horrible. I imagine it, it was. I. You know, I didn't sleep that night um, or the night before I called you. Um, and yeah, it, it, it's because, uh, you know, every everything you work for, everything's going to be gone. Uh, people are going to assume the very worst uh, in you. Yeah, it was. That was that was rough. And what. What was interesting also, though, it was a relief, like a, this relief also, like I was able to finally tell people I've been doing this, it, it, this horrible, shameful thing that I've kept a secret. This happened to me when I was little, which I never really told anyone. And I, you know, so internally 
it was almost it was like a relief like sure you've got these these huge conflicting emotional experiences yeah. then right and right. and just to paint the picture right i mean this was a huge case and, yeah. and when i get a call on this I, I get information from you sort of incrementally about all right you've got a child pornography raid mm -hmm. uh and i hate to say it but sometimes these sort of become run-of-the-mill in, in, in yeah. some way and then i learned that you're a physician and then I learned that you're a cancer physician. Then I learned what your position was at Ohio State. Yeah. Then I learned that your work has been somewhat uh, world-renowned. I mean, I'm not going to, I mean, that's not an exaggeration. Mm -hmm. And I immediately think to myself, this is going to be a circus. Mm -hmm. uh, and then out comes the other stuff, right, about your own experiences as a childhood and all of that. And, uh, you know, we as attorneys who handle cases uh, like this, and, and there's a difference, right? I mean, there's a difference between, I hate to say it, but the run-of-the-mill case and the one that gets the media and the public and the hue and cry uh, because they aren't treated the same. They are not. Mm -hmm. um, now, the it, it, before we move on with your experience, I will share this, is that there is, in at least in Ohio and I think many other states, uh, because you and I have now read and shared some articles uh, about this stuff, there's a choice that is made early on by law enforcement. Uh, certain cases are either going to go to federal court mm -hmm. or they're going to go to state court. And as you learn, probably the hard way, yeah. um, there is a vast difference in how they are treated. By and large, if a case in Ohio goes to state court, uh, you have a better shot of avoiding prison. If a case goes to federal court, then you almost have no shot. In fact, you do have no shot if you're convicted uh, of avoiding prison. You're going. Right. And, and, you know, there's some case law and some right out of our district that proves that. Right. Uh, and I guess that sort of begs the question, how is that decision made? And the answer is, who knows, right? I mean, I know. I remember you telling me that. You yeah. were like, well, we got to find out if this is going to be a state or a federal case. And I'm like, well, how is that? You're like, I don't know. I don't know. I'll find out. I only find out when it happens. And that was the day and age that there was very little indication that we had as defense attorneys other than making a phone call to the task force and or the prosecutor in the state court who deals with such matters or the prosecutor, the assistant United States attorney in the federal system who deals with them. And it's like rolling the dice. Now, yours came up snake eyes. I hate to say it. You came up in federal court. Mm -hmm. Now, I never got a good reason for that. I never... Uh, and nor is anybody required to give me one. Um, but I will say this, um, usually in that era anyway, the, the, the more publicity, the more attention, the more likely that the federal authorities were going to handle it. That's one. Two, at any given time, we're going to have a situation where federal courts uh, through the Department of Justice is going to have an interest in a certain type of offense. Now, this isn't a bad thing, right? This is an allocation of resources. This is like uh, there was a time that uh, for a 10-year period that narcotics defense in federal court was a huge business for me, mm -hmm. defending those cases. And then 9-11 happens, and they pulled all those resources, and they're, they're fighting terrorism. Nobody can fault it. It's not like we want people to go commit other types right. of crimes, but we, there's an allocation of resources. And in, in your uh, case, this was an allocation of their resources at that particular time. Um, and other cases I had went in the state court system. Yours went federal. Mm -hmm. uh, now, why does that matter? Because the federal system has certain 
uh, sentencing requirements, as we talked about, and certain calculations in the guideline or the sentencing guidelines, and even in the statutory scheme that just mandate prison. Right. And those don't exist in state court. So right on the drop, right? You're flipping a coin, and where do you land? And you right. landed uh, tails, if that's the best, if that's the worst of it. Anyway. And I remember shortly after that, when it was, you know, determined to be federal, you say you, you told me, you're going to do prison time. You got to start wrapping your head around that. Yep. <clears throat> like, don't even don't even entertain the idea that you won't. Well, let me ask you, because I don't know if I've ever had this particular conversation with you, either on or off the record, either way, but. <clears throat> You know, I feel that my job is not to candy coat things or deliver, mm -hmm. uh, you know, sort of a mixed message of or a mixed bag of news or or, or make it. I'm not going to soften the blow, right? right. I mean, you're going to get it. You're going to get it straight, and then let's move on. Uh, what's the reaction to that when you hear that out of your attorney? You're thinking, holy crap. Uh, again, a similar, like sky is falling. You know, when I read my pretrial report and they recommended. 48 months, I was drinking, you know, coffee nervously going through it. And then I saw that figure and I like threw up. I like went outside and wow. puked. I, you know, I hadn't even eaten yet. So it was just all yeah. bile and coffee uh, uh, on, the, on the lawn. You know, and that's the side of things that as attorneys, we don't always hear, right? Mm -hmm. Now, I think in our case, I wasn't the only part of your team. I mean, we, you right. had assembled a really good team of defense mm -hmm. lawyers. We all had experience and we all had uh, uh, strengths in, in, in areas that were very relevant to your case. Uh, but we don't always get that kind of feedback. I think we ended up though with a with the kind of attorney-client relationship that uh, we did share that kind of stuff. But uh, by and large, you hear that news and your attorneys can't do much about that. Now it's about minimizing how much prison there was. Mm -hmm. uh, let's talk about that. You. Um, we engaged with the United States Attorney's Office, and uh, early on, one of the things that we as, as lawyers did and do, as, as we talked to you about, we have to assess the case, because I wouldn't tell you you're going to prison unless I thought they can prove their case, right. and unless I thought um, if we fight the case, it gets worse, right? So right. we have to make this decision early on. If they have overwhelming evidence against you. Yeah, and there was no case to fight. I mean, I yeah. on day one, I was pretty upfront with, with everything I did. And, um, I had a laptop with me and cause I was in Colorado Yeah. and they said, you know, don't do anything to it. Just hand it over. There's going to be a, a Boulder police officer coming by. Um, in other words, you cooperated, you, yeah, I you just, know, let's just say what it is. You confessed. Yeah. And I just, I just wanted to get it out. I think. Now you made a statement earlier and you said, um, I just, I, I wanted to get rid of the secret. I can't even you use the term secret. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of folks out there who have been in recovery or in their, whatever addiction therapy there is. And there's this notion that secrets, uh, are, are like this internal poison that eats you alive. Mm -hmm. And the only way you can deal with it is the real simple way. Just yeah. tell it. Yeah, just let it out. And it's not a secret anymore by definition. And somehow that just sort of lowers everything. And, and now, all right, at least I know. Mm -hmm. It's out, and now we can start rebuilding. Yeah. Uh, and it seems like that's sort of what you were feeling. It was. Uh, it was just, a, it was just a, like I said, just an instant relief. You know, it was like, uh, I don't have to. I mean, it, it's, 
it took a lot of internal energy to kind of keep stuff down, keep stuff at the back of my mind and not let it interfere. And I, I, you know, that's part of the reason why I heap so much work onto myself. It was like another way to sure quiet the demons, if you will. And it's not, it doesn't sound like any surprise why somebody would suggest ADHD, right? You're just pushing so hard in all these directions. Yeah. Um, But and I was never comfortable. And that's the other thing too. I was, you know, I was drinking a lot as well. Uh, I was about 30 pounds heavier than I am now. I'd go to Kroger's and check my blood pressure, and it's like, you know, 190 over 100. So you're this cancer doc, and you're going to Kroger to check your blood pressure? That's well, awesome. <laughs> well, it's there. And, I mean, I knew it all throughout med school and residency. It always ran high. And, I mean, I just had it checked the other day, and it's like uh, 113 over 60. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it was it was physically... Uh, just kind of eating away at me. And and I know we had talked about Elton, the, the, the yeah. men there. It, it was, the details were different, but the themes were all the same. You mean the trauma, the, the something in the past? Yeah, something in the past. Um, I would, the trauma was either like sexual abuse, maybe about half the guys there uh, were sexually abused also, but it, it didn't necessarily have to be that. There, the best example is uh, one of the guys I met there. He watched his father beat his mother within an inch of her life. And so he gets taken out of the home. And when he watches this happen, he's like eight years old. So he gets taken out of the home. He's staying with extended family. And his cousin, who's like 14, you know, he had that was back in the VHS era. And he had a pornographic movie. And he goes, hey, check this out. You know, the kid's eight years old. And through his therapy, he goes, I kind of linked, you know, that traumatic event with sexuality, you know, sexual things. And that, that, that that's kind of the common thread that I, I and I, like I said, I, I got the background story on 80 to 100 guys while I was there. Um, it's trauma and early childhood sexualization. That kind of is a table setter uh, for um you know, the guys that I met to get kind of caught up into this stuff that's, that's and then, just out there. And then the exposure, right? Then then the end. You say you set the table and then somehow the exposure happens. Maybe like you said, by accident almost, you, you just stumbled into this and all of a sudden there's that exposure and then whatever need there is to look at it after that. Yeah, and that's the, that's the common theme I would hear also is I didn't go looking for it. It found me. And, and a lot of times it's in the context of guys looking up you know, internet porn. Sure. And it's something guy like through college, you know, med school, even, you know, people go, yeah, you porn or what, you know. Mm-hmm. So that activity is there. And I know it's true because a third to a half of the internet bandwidth is dedicated to pornography. Isn't that amazing? And, and the industry makes more money than the NFL, Major League Baseball, NBA combined. So it's an activity that people do. And this, that, illegal material is is sort of comes in that ocean and that's where people can can find it yeah and one of the points that we're sort of been dancing around i'm just going to make right now is that uh there ought to be some delineation of uh, maybe how punishment happens or how sentencing happens depending upon motivation and when i say there ought to be i know that's such a broad swath of a statement But maybe it's better to say there isn't. 
one right now. So again, we're back to the truck driver. All right. these folks are, be, are treated like the truck driver. Right. And that there does need to be somewhat of an off ramp. And I, I talk about that in the second book, kind of like a diversion program where if, if that's the extent of your culpability, you know, the, you'd get definitely get a warning, you know, some definitely mandated therapy, but also, you know, pay fines. It can be like a, a revenue generating type program that can be used to eradicate or at least move towards the eradication of this material online. Well, let's give the other side, because I think to be fair, we need to, and I think right. to be fair, it's important, right? right? I mean, none of this is to say, first of all, that this is a victimless crime. I mean, I don't think it is. No. And, and, the, and the, the philosophy, of course, is if there is a need or a motive for people to look at this stuff, then it, by supply and demand, it'll be created. And every time a child is abused on tape or on camera, uh, then it, I guess the theory would go, if you eliminate all the demand for that, it would disappear. Mm-hmm. Um, so the less demand, the better. And right. that way you, you sort of punish the user side. Uh, and every time it's looked at, the theory would go, is that it's another, yet another victimization of mm-hmm. the victim. And in fact, I read an article that we shared, right, that you shared with me about just that. There's been Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court case law talking about restitution, financial restitution, mm-hmm. to victims of this of, of child pornography cases in the sense that uh, there was one story where a, a woman had sort of moved on, had dealt with her childhood past, much like I think you're talking about. Right. But then every time... Uh, her images were still out there, rather, and every time it was looked at, and every time she heard it was looked at as part of a case or something else. Right. It was traumatizing. She couldn't move on, right? right. Now, that's horrible. None of this is to, to give people a pass, I guess. No, and that's Not why, even people like you, frankly. No. no. I mean, that's just... And most of the, just about all of the men that I talked with, they all agreed with that. Like, it's horrible what I've done. The harm that I created was reprehensible. And that wasn't their intent to do that. They were too busy wrapped up in their own problems. Sure, know? which the other side would say very selfish yeah. or or very uh, self-centered. Or yeah, and, and it's true. And and none of them were saying it should be legal or what I did was no big deal. Um, the the wrongness of the offender group was definitely recognized. Well, let me give you yet the contrary to. Um, to that, which is to say, all right, it's selfish, it is self-centered, uh, it's arrogant, perhaps, whatever the words you want to use along those lines. Um, here's the other thing I've noticed, and I've had this, where I get calls from folks who have engaged in behavior that is criminal mm-hmm. and say, it's, say they, hey, look, I've looked at internet porn, I've looked at child porn, what do I do? Um, there is not an easy way to pick up the phone and say, all right, counselor, I need help, or I, need, uh, I want some therapy on this. Mm-hmm. Because we have in our society something called this mandatory reporter law, mm-hmm. uh, where if you go in and make certain admissions and confessions, they not only can, but have to, have to. actually report you to the authority. So the, th- the very therapy that is needed uh, can't be provided and, in fact, is chilled to the extent that nobody goes and gets it, and you end up in this self-help or self-therapy situation. Yeah, my, that happened to my cellmate. Uh, he, he tried to reach out several times and... One of them said, you can't tell me anything further because I, ha- I would have to report. Because he had a, actually a porn addiction and it was getting more extreme. And I think 
she knew where he was going to go with that. So she cut him off and said, I don't want to hear anymore. You're going to have to go. So he was actually then what? trying, right. you know, to get to get help. And it's the the irony of that is so uh, thick to me, because if the goal is to eliminate the demand, mm -hmm. then we have to do that in more than just a ancillary optics type of way, right? It looks good to say we are putting those who have some need, whatever it is, in prison for these huge numbers. Uh, by numbers, I mean years. Right. Um, and it looks good and you do that, but there's always somebody else to replace it and, and, or somebody else to replace that individual who will still look at it again. You're getting nowhere, right? You're looking good, but you're getting nowhere. Right. Um, what if we had a system that actually encouraged uh, some therapeutic intervention? And even if it happens on the heels of a conviction, I think like you said, so again, I'm not advocating necessarily to give anybody a pass for this kind no. of behavior, right? Just because you have trauma doesn't mean you get to go do these types of things. No, correct. Right? Yeah. It, it's like, um, you know, if, if you go, if you get a D or DUI manslaughter, like you didn't mean to, sure. you know, harm the people in that car. You were still not in your right mind. Right. You're still responsible but you, you are suffering with alcohol, you are not in the right frame of mind. So that intent's different. You know, people were harmed or, or killed, and, but that person did not wake up and say, I wanna kill someone on the road today. It was a series of bad emotional decisions and a series of bad events that led to that. And I think that's, that's more what, um, you know, a lot of the guys that I talked with, they felt that way. They took responsibility for it. Yeah, And a lot of them didn't even recognize the harm that it was doing, like I said, because they were just so wrapped up in their, in their own well, problems. Here's what we got to do. We, we are yet due for another break. Mm -hmm. And um, we're going to cover more ground, a lot more ground still. Uh, so let's hold this off until the next segment. But we are going to cover sort of how the law does treat people uh, the same in, in the sense that how it escalates so quickly to these huge numbers. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I want to hear uh, about your books mm -hmm. and, and plans going forward. Okay. So we'll be back. All right. Lawyer talk back from the break, talking uh, with Dr. Chris Pulaski about uh, child pornography of all things and uh, what it is, what it's done and, and your experience with it. Mm -hmm. um, we've, we've left sort of talking about uh, how, Elkton, where you served your time, was full of folks who were just sort of like you. Yeah. And maybe a little bit of a discussion about how that happens. And I, I wanted to just give some legal insight. And I'm actually, you've learned quite a bit about what's called the U.S. Sen US sentencing guidelines. <laughs> yes. And how people are sentenced in federal court. Um, your analogy was awesome when we were talking off, the, off camera here about uh, here's how this works. I'll get to the analogy in a second. It starts with a sort of this baseline of what the sentence ought to be. Mm -hmm. And every factor, there, then they list certain factors that if you add those in, the sentence goes up and up and up. Well, that makes perfect sense, right? Right. Increased severity or culpability. Sure. Except the very first one everybody sees is you used a computer. Right. All right. Everybody uses a computer in this day and age. This is your analogy. What did you say? Some of us. It's like using a car. If you're in trouble for speeding, right, you yeah. get an enhancement on your because on your, on your citation. Everybody gets that, right? right? 
And then there's some more nuanced ones about uh, you hear about all the time on the news, like somebody had like 600 images or a thousand images. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a threshold that 600 images is raises your range up sort of beyond right. anything uh, that it's the max. Mm -hmm. uh, and but they don't tell you that each time there's a movie, it counts as 75 images. Right. So to get to that doesn't take much. Right. Uh, so when people hear on the media how many images they had, it's like the movies are counting. Uh, 75 times right uh and then there's others too called dissemination so if you've got a dissemination component uh everybody thinks to themselves well this this creep is actually sending and disseminating uh images but the what counts and in, in by and large in the in the in most cases is people are using i think you already referenced it a peer-to-peer -peer network right and like think Napster, I suppose, right? Yeah, where, Napster is the best example. Yeah, where there's a bucket inside your PC that you've turned on, or you download a software package that creates a bucket, and your computer just becomes a server for everybody else for this material that sort of goes all over into everybody's different buckets. The problem is when you download that, uh, the default setting is to leave your bucket open for others to have access to it, and that counts as disseminating. Mm -hmm. And again, I think the term disseminating sounds horrible until you add some maybe explanation to it and say, all right, what if you're just disseminating, but you didn't really know it or you weren't trying to. Right. Um, and I, and I do feel uh, again, that sharing child pornography is a horrible thing to do, but me sending, uh, some dude specifically more that I'm creating. Right. Like you're in a collusion or yeah. Yeah. Like I know the person and I'm sending it, or even if it's a chat room and I'm sharing, that's a whole different game than, Right. Somebody just happens to have unwitting access to my uh, computer. Right. Uh, so I guess the point is everybody gets these enhancements at Jump Street. And so they become not the exception, but the rule, mm -hmm. uh, which really means to say everybody starts really high and then there's not much that brings you back down low. And that's how people who are uh, the analogous or are analogous to the truck driver that we talked about earlier uh, it, are, are treated or the people who aren't the truck driver that we talked about earlier are treated like the truck driver mm -hmm. uh, because those things are in place to deal with that sort of more severe scenario back to Elkton. So that's what you experienced there, right? I mean, by and large, you had a situation similar to everybody else. Yeah. Very similar. So, um, <clears throat> they were only, uh, non-production, non-contact offenders. Um, and Elkton was unique. There's, I think there's only two other, correctional facilities that that's where the um, non-production, non-contact child pornography offenders are sort of corralled. Uh, there's another, there's one place in Texas and I forgot where the other one is, but that's where you're almost the majority of the prison population, which um, is pretty unique. Well, let me tell you what everybody's saying. Let me ask you what everybody's thinking. And, and maybe this is less to do about, well, a little, a little bit to do about all of it, but and going to prison. I mean, you're, you were a doctor, you were educated, you lived for the better part of your life on the right side of the law, right? You, right. Mean, you never saw yourself uh, going to no. prison. And that's not to say it's easy for anybody, right? I don't no. mean to say that, but uh, tell me your thoughts and experiences as you go in just as a general matter. Uh, if I could describe prison, are you familiar with a neutron star? It's over that real dense yeah. celestial body in like a tablespoon of it has as much mass in it as Mount Everest because it's so dense. Prison is a neutron star of suffering. <laughs> <laughs> right. Just 
there's, you can just see it on everyone's face. And I was at a low security. I can't even imagine what the higher security is like where people are, you know, there for a lot longer. The situation, the conditions are harsher. But by and large, people were suffering to get themselves there. And now it's just compounded. You know, you're cut off from family. You can't make any money. You know, I'm not hearing a big, a big uh, happy tale about rehabilitation. No, it, yeah. it, it's it was a lot. We're all living kind of on top of each other, and there's a lot of mental health problems, addiction problems. Um, you know, we're all just I mean, fighting. This, is, are all the stories true? Fighting, uh, conflict. Yeah, a lot of conflict. You couldn't really fight. If you got caught fighting, you'd go up the hill at the higher uh, security uh, level. But but even in this sort of lighter version of, of prison, there's just just a lot of suffering, you know. Um, and you're just around that, and you see it, and you notice it. And maybe I noticed it more because, you know, people found out I'm a doctor, so I'm, you know, given medical advice or people ask me questions, you know, like, Hey, my mom has uh, you know, newly diagnosed breast cancer. What, you know, I heard you're a cancer doctor. What, what should I expect? Or, I mean, do you feel, I, I sort of sense that may have given you a little bit of uh, protection, I mean, protection, not the right word, but maybe accept, help you find your way. Yeah. I think acceptance, uh, you know, I, in prisons, very, very, very segregate, you know, it's pretty much by race and, culture if you will and um and i talk about that in the second book how you know there's certain rooms for this race of people or certain rooms for that and i think because i was uh, a physician i was able to kind of i wouldn't like hang out with a particular but i had a little more freedom to go in between the different groups you know yeah. white black uh latino I mean, I don't plan to do anything to get me in prison, but I always thought it's like being a jailhouse lawyer, being a jailhouse professional might give you a little bit of, uh, yeah, uh, I don't know, some uh, easier way. Yeah. I don't know. And it was, it was unique to, and I write about that in the book too. One minute I got a guy who was in like the Aryan brotherhood and he's got a, you know, a tattoo of a cross on his shin. And then in that same day, I'm, you know, he's asking me about his mother with lung cancer. And then a few hours later, talking to an African-American man about his diabetic foot, you know, I mean, that's a, that's, yeah, a, that's a big spectrum. It is. And and you didn't get punished, so to speak, for doing that. No, they were, you know, they were kind of like, hey, and I, it helped too that I, you know, played basketball and softball, you know, I was yeah. so athletic and people would play as well. Now you're, what was your sentence, by the way? Uh, it was a, a year and a day. A year and a day. And I remember that day in court. We were standing next to you. Um, how's that feel? I mean, almost surreal, I imagine. It, it is. Um, is the, the, you know, the judge leaves to go to his chambers and you wonder what he's thinking and, uh, you know, family and friends are there and you don't know how it's going to go. Um, and, you know, a couple people are up, upset that, uh, you know, I thought you were going to get probation only. I'm like, no, that, that was never going to happen. And they're like, why they, why didn't they ask for six months? You know, not a, and I'm like, I, 
There's there's a strategic reason for that. Yes. Right? Yeah. And I I walked out of there like okay I you know I, I was accepting of of, of sure. what I got. Um, and just to fill in some blanks there, um, as far as sentencing goes, it is pretty much at that time anyway. It was pretty much mm -hmm. determined by the courts of appeals, the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals particularly, because that's the one that would uh, reign over our jurisdiction, uh, that you are going to prison, right? The judge has to. Uh, right. It's, it's a mandatory thing. Now, uh, if you read the statute, it's five years through various ways you can, you can lower that, and we did in your case. Mm -hmm. uh, you had perhaps more stuff, or as much as anything I, anybody I've ever worked with, uh, to mitigate your problems in your, your case, I guess. Um, you know, with the work you had done to help those uh, suffering from cancer, uh, the really huge amount of support that sort of emerged out of the woodwork mm -hmm. uh, that was very, very obvious. And in some situations also equally obvious to people that weren't there. Um, yeah. You know, you, you held a position of, of authority at Ohio State and, and some of that I know was sort of hurtful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and they probably didn't have a choice. No, and I understand. Yeah. I, mean, I yeah. completely understand. Yeah, everybody draws the political lines in these kind of cases. Yeah. Uh, so you hear a year and a day, something you told me later that I didn't know uh, because you had received treatment and therapy and actually had some, even were on meds, uh, psychotropic meds or, or mm -hmm. mental health meds. Uh, as, as we led up to that, you got off all of it to go to prison. Yes. <laughs> um, I mean, what do you, it's like... So there really isn't a medication for PTSD. The, you, there's some, um, you know, neurotrope, psychotropic medic, uh, Zo, uh, Zoloft would be, I think that's the only FDA approved. And I was on that when all this first started. And, you know, the during my the pretrial phase, all my therapy really focused on my child, like first, addressing what all happened in my childhood the next layer was sort of managing what ptsd uh is and it, that's more of a it's not really much of a chemical imbalance it's which a medication would help it's more of a uh like a neuro network path you know the limbic system amygdalas that that's part of the brain that governs like fear and stress it's a rewiring that you really can't take medication for. It's almost entirely a talk therapy, a psychotherapy. I've never dropped this on you, but I'm going to, because I remember at the time um, talking to you about the, the therapeutic work you were doing, mm -hmm. you were seeing psychiatrists, who obviously are MDs that have the ability to prescribe medication. And uh, that's sort of where you started with a psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking to myself, I had a little bit of concern. I was like, all right, here I have, a man who is a brilliant doctor, a brilliant scientist, somebody who has always been able to sort of put a, an order to the mm -hmm. world in a, in a numeric way, for lack of a better way to put it, or scientific way. But you had to unravel this stuff that didn't necessarily uh, get explained by order. In fact, maybe the opposite is, is chaos. Yeah. Uh, and I remember thinking to myself, I hope he does the work. Because to me, this was a talk therapy type of scenario. This was something you had to sit down and there wasn't a, a necessarily prescribed course of steps that you take and it right. equals good at the end, right? Right. There wasn't like a machine or a, a, a pill to, to fix it. 
Right, or like a protocol for chemotherapy. You do this. I mean, I mean, right. It, it, this is a little bit different. Yeah, it wasn't pure scientific industrial Western medicine. Sure. You and know. Now, I wanted to ask your opinion. What you having gone through talk therapy? Because in my, I, I remember thinking to myself, that's exactly what he doesn't need. To, like all the psychiatric stuff. I remember thinking, right. Now that's a component to it because you're dealing with the stress of the scenario. Right. But and at that, some point, you're gonna have to unravel. The bowl of spaghetti sitting in there, and that's what I, and that's what I, what I did and continued to do uh, when I got out um, as part of my probation. Um, I took the sex offender treatment program, and it was that's the stop program. Yeah, the stop program, yeah. and I was blessed to have a guy who his bread and butter was uh, trauma and post traumatic stress disorder, and. Uh, I mean, I worked really well and I gained even further insight. You know, when I, the first book is pretty much from the day of my raid to the day of my sentencing. And it focuses on some of the big things to un, to unpack, like, you know, my childhood and, and my behavioral issues. And, well, let's just say, what's the name of your, what's the title of your first book? Uh, Trauma, Shame, and the Power of Love. Trauma, Shame, and the Power of Love. And that's been yeah. published now. Yeah, that was published in February 2015. I read it. In fact, I got you sent the manuscript to me before you published it. Even yeah, um, I, I read carefully when you introduced yourself to your lawyers and had those first meetings. No, right, <laughs> uh, but that's in there too, and some of your experience, which was interesting for me to read. But uh, uh, go ahead. So you cover that early step, and then right. it stops where? Well, it stopped when I went to when I went to serve my sentence at Elkton, and it resumed when I was on. Uh, began probation. So the end of that book is the beginning of probation. Uh, actually, oh, the end of that book is the beginning of prison. Will you tell us? Yeah. So the the first book sort of centers on my house arrest. It's very therapy heavy because I do a lot of flashback chapters, and it I kind of make sense of my life up to that point, including not only my offense but also my success and what was really enlightening is that that big hole that was in me and drove me to keep doing more because I'm trying to prove my worth to myself that also had a big hand to play in my offense and it was interesting sure. that a very destructive and a very positive events in my life kind of have the same you know origin well, that you know to me I think I see that so often Mm-hmm. That it's not even an interesting point. I mean, it's just it's right. just a fact. And, and here's what I mean by that. Back to back to the question I always get: How do you represent those people? Uh, people who do these horrible things. Almost everybody uh, that I represent has amazing abilities to do stuff, right. uh, both positive and and negative. Right. But the abilities are amazing, mm-hmm. um, and often it's just a little shift of direction that can lead somebody on either the right path or the wrong path, mm-hmm. but the drive is there. The success or the, the tools for success are there. And it's not uncommon for me to deal with people who in a different context would be uh, very successful business folks or uh, successful, maybe even not, not even by money standards, but by whatever standards you have, right. very positive people. But through a little twist of fate, they end up drinking because that helped them silence the clutter in their brain or right. and then they get addicted to that or some other drug and then they use that skill set for a whole host of horrible reasons 
So I see this all the time. So I guess my point is most of the people I represent are not dirtballs. They're not horrible people. They're good people that went awry for various reasons. Yeah. And that um, it seems like most people commit crimes because they're because of a mental, you know, a mental health issue. Addiction would be one of them. A little bit of greed. So it's good to have money. Sure. And that's the overwhelming majority. And those are hand in glove, right? I mean, so greed, that, that compulsion to yeah. have is really a mental, it's really a, a... But truly evil, you know, true sociopathic people. I think we were talking earlier, in a supermax, the rate of true sociopaths is still only around 25%. That means the other 75% did a crime horrific enough to get into supermax. By sociopath, you mean... Like no remorse, right. you know, uh, no human connection. Yeah, this, this just, wall. Yeah. yeah. And not a wall necessarily by narcissistic standards, but just a complete void of right and wrong or any concern about it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So even even in the supermaxes, it's a minority. It, it, it comes back to mental health and, and greed, which is kind of a subset of mental health. I was in a case... Little side note: I, I was working on a case recently that uh, it was an individual who had done something horrible, really, in in the context of trying to impress others. All right, mm-hmm. um, so for lack of a better term, broadcasted it to the world. And I remember hearing the backlash out of the the system on this. And I finally it dawned on me in the middle of that. I just said, you know, it, this isn't to justify what this individual did. Right. But I'm, I just want to tell you that this isn't also, the, this also is not the person you need to worry about because the person you need to worry about would never have broadcasted it. They would have just done it, kept it a secret, right. and that's it. And that's sort of the sociopathic phenomenon you're talking about. I've represented very few of those people, if, if any, really. Yeah. Uh, most people have some other uh, mental health issues. And, and I guess I don't want to sound like somebody who's going to justify bad behavior based on mental health, but I think it's relevant to explain it. Right, exactly. Because you, and that's, you know, I, I continued with my therapy after I got out of, of prison. And, and that's I, what your book tracks, I guess. That's the, that's the, yeah. that's the work around there. And the, the second book, the, so the first half deals with my time at Elkton, and the second half, my time out. And I, I circle back to the therapy part for the last few chapters. And so the last few chapters of the second book look a lot like the first one. What's the name of the second book? Uh, a Tortuous Path. A Tortuous Path. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now, both books are available uh, for purchase, right? Yeah. Now they're both published now. Yeah, they're on Amazon. Have you gotten feedback on it? Yeah. Um, I've gotten some good ratings. Um, you know, reviews are like the lifeblood of self-published books, and they're really hard to come by because a traditional publishing route, you know, you have a publishing company that has their own advertising company and marketing divisions and so you kind of got to do it by hand and it's a slow process but you know i've i've gotten reviewed one of them was like a top 10 amazon reviewer who i wouldn't know from adam and uh they said they they grasped all the points i was trying to hit in 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 that second book i wonder you know i think the self-publication has become more and more common just because people can do it. I wonder though, 
what the demand for books like these, I mean, look, we're still in a society where if I asked, if I went outside and asked 10 people, how do you feel about child pornography? You would get the standard answers, kill them, castrate them, send them to prison forever. Who cares? Right. Uh, oh, I didn't, it's not for lack of trying going the traditional publishing route, but no literary agent or publishing company would touch my book with a 10 foot pole, either that, of them. And, and, you know, that's a telling mm -hmm. indicator of, the temperature out there on this stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, we are, even what we're talking about today, it's like you don't hear these kind of conversations, no. uh, at least not openly. No. Now, ironically, it happens in my field. We have these conversations all the time. Right. Um, but as soon as you step into the public eye, the optics matter. And uh, I think uh, nobody wants to say uh, or even appear that they're given consideration to this kind of offense for any reason. Right. The uh, Jacob Sullum, that, that journalist who does cover this subject, he gets backlash and hate mail all the time, like, oh, you're just a pedophile sympathizer. And, you know, he's trying to have a rational discussion about it. He gets backlash. And I, I think the decision by the State of Ohio Medical Board fell prey to that. Let's talk about well. that. Um, you're a licensed doctor. Mm -hmm. and, and frankly, this is one of the things that has troubled me the most about your situation and others is that you had, like we, like I said, sort of this lightning in a bottle gift to go do awesome things. And mm -hmm. it took a government license to do it. Um, and not only, uh, I, I guess, to use your mind, but actually help cure things like cancer and, and disease and, and a lot of times children mm -hmm. with cancer and disease. Uh, yeah, about 10% of my patients were children. Right. Of course, the news made it sound like oh, that's all I treated was and, children. And, 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 you know, even Judge Graham in the middle of your sentencing hearing was like, he almost made a speech to the media like, come on. Right. Call this like you see it. Right. Um, and it wasn't even like you were, you weren't the hands-on person at the, in, the, in the waiting rooms dealing with the kids. You were right. helping uh, on a huge, enormous, complicated level. The with science research. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but um, we were talking about the medical board. Yeah. Uh, what I want to do is hear more about that. Here are some of the philosophies on what they did, why they did it. And uh, uh, we're going to take another break. But after that, I want to hear those things and then maybe what you're doing now and what's the future look like. So uh, let's take another break and uh, we'll be back for that. All right, here we are, Steve Palmer, back with Lawyer Talk interview series, Dr. Chris Pulaski. Uh, we've been covering uh, lots of topics relative to your conviction, your career, child pornography, uh, and everything in between. I want to sort of shift to the aftermath. We started to hit on it last segment, but uh, the medical board, uh, you know, as your case uh, progressed, I think that was maybe on the back burner, for lack of a better way to put yeah. it, until your case is over. Uh, and I remember the medical board uh, taking at least early action and notifications, et cetera, uh, but eventually uh, it came home to roost. Uh, let's talk about it. Yeah, so I'm maybe five days out of the halfway house. And, uh, you know, I'm still, I lost a ton of weight. You know, my suit, I looked like the, the singer from the Talking Heads a little bit when he had that big suit where it looked like I was borrowing my dad's. You're dating yourself, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. And, uh, you know, so it was like a two-day hearing. Um, you know, they brought in the detective who investigated me online. They put me under 
like four or five hours of questioning and uh, they brought in the forensic neuropsychologist uh, who evaluated me. Um, we submitted the first book, you know, hoping that it would flesh out all the details of sure. what, what was going on. A, a prepackaged, thorough explanation of everything. Yeah, and that was one of the hopes. And, um, you know, one of my former trainees helped me get that published so quickly. That's why it was published while I was still at Elkton. And it was just resistance at every turn. And the medical board giving you resistance at every turn. Yeah. Well, the, at the hearing. Or at the hearing. Up until then, they're kind of working with us. They allowed us to delay things to wait till I could be physically present, you know, for the for the hearing. You know, they wanted to, uh, they objected to chapter eight of the first book. And that's where I was put under voice stress analysis and asked, you know, have I ever touched a child? You know, have I ever, um, do I have like a, interest in children, you know, a sexual affinity towards children. I kind of get that clarified in that chapter and they wanted that stricken. And we actually had to get a, an audio recording of that, uh, interrogation. And we we're going to be like, well, if you're going to take chapter eight out, we're going to submit the audio. You mean the, uh, of the examination of, of the, the voice, voice stress analysis. I remember when that was done. Right? Yeah. And, and, you know, ironically, I'm not going to, comment too much on, yeah. on the reliability of voice stress analysis, but just to, just to give us a quick aside, you've since taken polygraph after polygraph after polygraph. I've taken four polygraphs, two different techniques and an eye movement test in addition to the voice stress analysis. And that's what I tell people. I'm like, I'm probably safer than someone just picked up off the street. I, I've been vetted by the federal government and they don't just ask, you know, All right, they yeah. ask, they don't just ask, you know, did you tell us, were you truthful to the police about your act? They ask everything, past actions, have you ever paid for sex? Do you think about children's sex? Like, what are your thoughts? Mm -hmm. Not just your actions, but your thoughts. Any deviant thing they've at, they, they, they get in your head and because they want to make sure you're safe. And just so you, and Anybody who knows things about polygraphs, that's what makes them dangerous. It's because those thoughts, I mean, if you have doubts about your own thoughts, mm -hmm. it gets hard to pass those things. Right. Or at least you show up inconclusive. Right. Uh, and irrespective of their reliability, uh, that's what trips people up. Right. Um, but you have since passed all those. And yeah. At the time I, of the medical board, look, reliability aside, they didn't want to hear it. No, they didn't. And so that was in August of 2015. And my attorney at the time said, usually if there's a sexually oriented misconduct of a physician, the, the board will render a decision in a, like a month or two after. And it's usually, you know, you're done. Like if you, you know, had sex with the patient or, you know, that type of thing. But it was, I believe it was six or seven months. Cause my, the final decision was in March of 2016. So from August, to March, I was just kind of waiting. And then as time went on, the thought was, oh, maybe they really are considering the evidence. Cause we, I mean, our evidence, all the reports, it was a stack of documents like that thick. And just to summarize, you were transparent about everything, right? You had admitted to what you did. Mm -hmm. You disclosed your childhood problems. Mm -hmm. You gave your own 
uh, analysis of it uh, mm-hmm. through therapy, through self-reflection, and whatever other means you used. You gave it all to them uh, yeah. in, and, in a package. And even that voice stress analysis, I asked them to expand the scope of the questioning. You know, I said, right. you know, we, I said, we can change that name to, because they were focused mainly about my patients, my pediatric patients. Right. And I go, you can change that to all children. And the, the detective's like, okay. Sure. You know, yeah. yeah. Want to get your room sitting there. So, so going into it, I had this thought, you know, maybe they'll really look at you know, the evidence and the data collected. And, you know, when I'm there, uh, they got all the news network cameras and, you know, they were kind of, my attorney said that not everyone was pleased that all these cameras are on them. I bet. And when I was listening to their deliberation, it, it was like they didn't look at anything we submitted. They were, and I know that because they were getting figures wrong and, and facts wrong. You know, they said, I, I did this, like I had hundreds of pictures and I did this all the time, which wasn't true. I had the police saw me do it five times when they were watching me. I had, and I had done that before years before. And we're talking, it was like 57 and deleted they, files. And they knew that. They knew, well, that was in there. That was in there. In other words, you didn't conceal that you had done it in a similar sort of course of conduct before. And I just want to- And I told them that. And I just want to make it clear. It's like, you were what, you were the leader, right? You you would go in- I'd uh, say something, it would have that reaction to me, and then I would shut everything down and delete everything. And through technology that, that we don't need to get into here, the police were able to verify that. Correct. This is not you saying it. This was the evidence in the case. Right. It's yeah. not, and it's not like I was curating this collection of files and all that. It was just something I did very infrequently. So the board theoretically should have known, should have known all of this. And based on what they said, they were reading the inaccurate headlines and reports from when my indictment first happened on July 24th, 2013. So they were going off of that, those facts. And they obviously did not review the uh, evaluation by the neuropsychologist because one of the persons said on the board said it's good we got him now before he really did something bad which my case and the social science all say that uh, this is not a predictor of contact offending it's not in fact it's almost a it's almost contrary to that Mm -hmm. uh, if you look at statistically and and it almost offends me in some weird ways that you get a bunch of uh, trained doctors mm-hmm. looking at another medical, to the extent a psychologist is a medical professional, uh, evaluation on this who um, assessed, uh, right. researched, and gave an opinion on this, and uh, they completely ignore it and throw it out the window because yeah. of the part because of the optics again. Yeah, and then the other one that really hit me hard was. Uh, they said I made the moral decision to do this, and therefore I, uh, I'm not um, competent to be a physician. And that was odd because there are many cases where uh, a physician will suffer from addiction or alcoholism. Plenty will make the moral decision 
to be, you know, inebriated or compromised, go into the clinic and treat patients and surgery. Even I've done, and, and surgeons go back to work. Right. And after they go through, you know, they get they go through their punishment, they go through their rehabilitation, you know, they address their issues, and rather than throw away their skill set. They go, all right, you can come back. You've done everything. Even though they made the moral decision sure. to, to show. And, and well, they so, had to do that, right? Because you had, they had to come up with a link as to why you are not fit to be a medical professional because of what you did. Right. And there isn't a logical link. No. So you can tie it to this uh, sort of amorphous, undefined concept of morality. Right. And so I, I picked. The way I, and I talk about this in book two is I pick the wrong mental illness and the wrong maladaptive coping mechanism to enable me to get my license back. If it had been addiction or alcoholism, I would have got it back because it's more, yeah. it's more, and part of it too is understanding and acceptance. You know, 30 years ago, if you showed up to the hospital drunk, your career was done. And now they, now there's an understanding that, you know, addiction is an illness. It needs treatment. There's a, sure. there's a chemical reason for it. And I think eventually, you know, this type of charge, there'll be that, that understanding. And that's one of the reasons why I wrote those books. Well, to me, it would have been, it would have made perfect sense, irrespective of the data, irrespective of the psych reports, irrespective of all the evidence, if they said, all right. You can have your license, but it's conditional. Right. You can't practice around children. You can't. I mean, these are safeguards that I don't think anybody. No. Even though the empirical data probably doesn't necessarily support that. And what I mean by that is if you check statistically, it's like the people who did what you did don't ever go to be to have touching and don't no. ever have contact type of offenses and in the future. Only like one or two percent have a repeat offense of, you know, the same offense. Sure. And I would bet without looking at those studies that the repeat is defined by they had second convictions. And in my business, that means there might've been undiscovered conduct before the first conviction. Right. Right. So you get a first conviction and then maybe before that's discovered, there's more, they get convicted. And then and that, afterwards, yeah, yeah, that happens a lot. And that can skew stats like that. Right. I, these are not high recidivism type no. of offenses. Right. But the, the, and that's not Steve Palmer on, on, on recidivism. I mean, these are studies that, that they're pretty much clear, right? Right. And I did, I did research for the second book because, you know, I'm on the sex offender registry now. So that, that's like a whole other dust cloud that I have to deal with. And, you know, I was researching the origins because the one thing that gets thrown around all the time is that, all, you know, all sex offenders, uh, you know, have like a 80 to 90% repeat offense rate. And, it's nonsense. It, it's not even close. And um, I mean, there was a, a meta-analysis looking at 8,000 consecutive sex offender cases, 8,000. And consecutive means they didn't just cherry pick, you know, ones sure. that they're like, oh, this will help our conclusion. It's, it's an 80,000 consecutive sample. And they found that low risk offenders, you know, non-contact, child pornography uh, cases, those Romeo and Juliet cases where, you know, like a guy's 19 and his girlfriend's 16 or sure. people who got public urination there, 
their recidivism rate, not even their repeat offense, but just any any crime, any crime, in the first five years coming out of prison is like four percent. For and that's the low risk. Now the high risk is a little higher in the first five years. It's around 25 percent. And these are your repeat offenders, your violent contact offenders. But the recidivism isn't necessarily another violent sex offense either. Correct. Right. Right. Um, and and there's there is, this is where I get my dander up a little bit about studies like this because it's all about how they're defining terms. And if you're going to say right, and probation violations count. Correct. Right. And that bumps up the number. So if you count a probation violation as recidivism and, but you don't factor in what the violation was, for instance, maybe you didn't, you missed a report date because you had the flu. Or you were drinking a beer when you weren't supposed to have alcohol. And and maybe alcohol when you're not allowed to have alcohol. I mean, nobody's going to excuse that, except it's not quite what people think of as recidivism. Right. It's not like you went and robbed a bank or something. Right. Or let alone touch somebody. Yeah. Yeah. So these are, these are things that, uh, we've already turned into it. The medical board, obviously, no, no they, uh, they, 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 no, there, it was unanimous. There, there wasn't, there was really no discussion. Even, even we submitted Judge Graham's opinion and order because he, you know, he wrote, he wrote that out, and he goes through. So you had a a, a judge, a federal judge, and a well-respected neuropsychologist all saying the same thing. Like, sure, this guy's not dangerous. A mental health issue, and they welcome were just, to my world, my friend. <laughs> they were just welcome to my world. This is the I, I tell my son. They were just afraid of what the news was going to say. This is the my cousin Vinny moment. You got all the law right. You made your objection right. You've done everything you should. You even complimented for the effort. Overruled, right? It, it, this is and this happens. I, I make a yeah. joke of it because what happens is uh, we, as particularly defense attorneys, uh, when there are just times that I'm right and and. There are plenty of times I'm wrong, for sure. There's plenty mm-hmm. of times my argument does not hold water. There's plenty of times my argument uh, is just the best I can do under the circumstances. But often I'm right, but people don't want to hear it. Uh, they don't want to even consider it and don't confuse anybody with facts like that because they've already got their mind made up. Right. And that, by and large, is made up of the optics. And I think that's probably what you experienced. It was. And, and even still, to this day. Yeah. Um, if you talk about, uh, we've, we've danced around a little bit, but the sex offender registry. Right. And it's predicated on public safety and higher, higher repeat offense rates. And uh, it's, it just, it's like another layer that you have to contend yeah. with. Uh, that has been the bane of many, many, many existences. And even mine, as I, as I work with folks trying to resolve cases, because as you've already pointed out, um, and here, here'll be the final point and then I'll, I'll, I'll give the facts, but basically the validity of the sex offender registry is inflated beyond any uh, reliability. In other words, if you give everybody or if you put everybody on the registry, it has no value. And the more people you put on that don't fit into the model that folks uh, initially thought it should be, then it lessens the impact. And in fact, maybe even destroys the impact that it might have for those who should be on it. right? Right. So when you get, like you said, a, a kid who's with his uh, girlfriend at 19 and 16 or whatever that scenario is, well, that's not to condone that offense by any measure. Right. But it is to say that person's probably not a predator. No. Um, if you get and, two juveniles that shared pictures of each other. Right. With misdemeanor juvenile convictions, they can end up on a list. Right. Um, that, those people aren't predators. Now, they're not 
that doesn't happen all the time. And I don't mean to say the list is made up of that. Right. But if the design is to identify dangerous people, correct, then it should at least do that in an empirical way, or at least a reliable way to say, all right, we know that habitual rapists are dangerous because they do it by habit. Right. <laughs> you know, right. You know, that, that's dangerous. Right. Uh, we also <laughs> know that people that do what you did, while it is a sex offense, 99.999% of the time do not commit contact offenses or prey on kids. Right. All right. So where's the, how does that fit into the, into the mix here? Right. And the, the news doesn't help either. Cause uh, of course not. No. Rather, rather than say the public ur- urinator moved into your neighborhood, they just say the sex offender moved in your neighborhood. Well, that's right. It becomes a, an undefined label. Right. And uh, you're talking about uh, who's that? Is it Epstein? Mm-hmm. Brian, now with that, that guy did some bad stuff, but they just call him a convicted sex offender. So now the public urinator who just moved in and the news is broadcasting it and everyone's are equating him with Epstein and they're not even, they're not even in the same the ballpark of crime. The government has classified them the same Yeah, by label without any explanation. I remember when I first met you, you said, you, you warned me. You said, there really is no spectrum for this offense. If, if, if the crime was violent, like violence, because you can get in a bar fight or you can be a serial killer. But with this crime, it's the, all the, same. The, bar fight, the guy who gets in a bar fight because someone knocked the beer out of his hand is felt to be just as bad as the serial killer who's got 20 people buried in his Yes. basement that is it right because again those those legal standards that were created put everybody way up high to begin with and yeah. they don't go any higher right that it, it needs to go to 11 you know it needs to go higher and there right. needs to be a, a better adjustment here and it really starts with i guess the 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 perception and how these offenses are portrayed and i don't have a good solution for it other than to say this is what our General Assembly should do. This is what Congress should do. This, these are the kind yeah. of public debates that should happen. And, and I think they do. I mean, I think in, in large part, the laws eventually reflect yeah, societal feelings, right? It yeah. takes a while to catch up. And, and it, it, things do have to change. Be, and get, going back to that New York Times article, it was very depressing. So here's, a, here's the guys sitting at Elkton who know they did wrong, or understand or trying to improve themselves to not do that and understood that they needed to be punished. So all that time and energy, and then you read that the number of illegal files doubled in the last year, went from like 18 million to 45 million. Mm -hmm. So things do need to change because the the current approach is is not even, it's not putting a dent in the online problem. and, And you're into this, you're into this conceptual notion of what our system is about. Mm-hmm. You've got rehabilitation uh, and punishment, right? Right. That, that's what, and deterrence. So let's start with rehabilitation. Going to prison is not a rehabilitative experience, right? It might be a, a shock somebody into a state of, I'm never doing it again. I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, I'd say. And, and that, that, but it's not doing the, the in, like in your situation, the psychological work that maybe is necessary. Um, it's punishment and it checks that box. And I'm not necessarily going to quibble with that box, no. right? I'm not going to quibble with it. 
uh, and then deterrence. And this is one that bugs me too, because nobody is sitting like you were in Colorado thinking, I better not do this because somebody else went to prison for it. These, these kind of offenses, there's an impulse to do it and a compulsion to do it mm -hmm. that is undeterred until you wake up and say, holy crap. Right. Right. Um, well, look, we've spent a lot of time. we got to wrap it up. But I do want one more time. Tell us uh, both books, where people can find them. Okay. Um, first one? Yeah, the first one is Trauma, Shame, and the Power of Love, uh, The Fall and Rise of a Physician Who feels, uh, Heals Himself. That's the full name it. Um, and the second book is A Tortuous Path, Atonement and Reinvention in a Broken System. Uh, they're both available on Amazon. Uh, I have an author page on Amazon. They have their product pages. The first book is from Raid on My House to Sentencing. And the second book is from Going to Prison to the first few years uh, coming out and, and rebuilding and reinventing myself. And I suppose I should ask, uh, is there another book coming? Maybe. Uh, I don't, I don't know. I, uh, well, hopefully nothing bad happens to you that'll cause you have to write about it. Well, that's the thing. I, I think, and it's a good thing from this point on, I don't have too much major to write about. So, and I'm hoping that my life gets boring is yeah. really what I want. And, and I, I gotta tell you, you are by every measure of our system, despite its uh, strengths and weaknesses, a success. I mean, you survived this. Uh, you've had your journey. You used it, as I tell my clients often, as a pivot point mm -hmm. and uh, as, a, as a time to sort of reevaluate and change. Uh, and then you land it back on your feet. I mean, we don't need to talk about what you're doing now, but you're, you're, you're working, you enjoy your work, and uh, yeah. your career is, is going in the right direction. So yeah. um, congratulations, man. I don't, know, I don't know any other way to say it. I mean, that, that, that's an awesome, awesome thing because it is also a rare thing it in, is. in our system. I mean, I've had the ball bounce for me and key breaks, you know, having the right person at the right time there. Um, you know, I was blessed with the judge I have. I'm blessed with the probation officer that I have. I mean, I, I hear stories and it could be, it could be a lot worse, but I think because I got those breaks, that's why I have been successful. Well, it's, it's not just about getting the breaks, but taking advantage of the breaks. Yeah. Because once you take advantage of one, you're going to be more inclined to get another one from somebody else who has a choice. So yeah. either way, uh, that'll wrap this episode of Lawyer Talk up here with Dr. Pulaski. Uh, we may do more on this topic on uh, child pornography and these types of offenses because I think it needs uh, a little bit more. Uh, but for now, that is it. Signing off. Good to see you again, man. Good to see you.